0: Now by the end of this message, I want you to know the answer to a question or at least by the the end of the engagement with the question itself. Uh, The question is this, the question that I want you to know the answer to is, are you ready for the second coming of Jesus? And if so, on what basis, on what basis are you confident that you are ready? How do you know you are ready? What makes you think you are ready for the second coming of Jesus? And if you, you are truly ready for the second coming, what impact does it have on your life? How does it change the way you live? So, are you ready for the second coming of Jesus? Straightforward question. Now, each one of us needs to give an honest answer to this question because the Bible is clear. Jesus is coming again. In fact, he has never left, really. But you appear again in glory. Right? You appear again in glory. The Bible is clear about that. And in fact, I'm, I would even say the Bible is obsessed with this topic. Because those of you who like counting may have counted this already, I think. Those of us who like counting know that there are 1,800 verses in the Old Testament that refer... To the second coming of Christ. One in 30 verses in the New Testament, one in 30 verses in the New Testament refer to his second coming. 23 out of 27 New Testament books talk about the return of Christ. For every one prophecy in the Bible about Christ's first coming, there are eight prophecies concerning his second coming. That's obsession right there. It is obsessed with this topic. It's interesting we don't hear much about it though, isn't it? Often, we don't think about it. But actually the Bible is all about the second coming of Christ, we might even say. Now, this morning we are going to look at Jesus' first prophecy in Mark of his second coming. There are more. We'll come to those later, but this is the first Jesus' own first prophecy of his second coming. We're looking at Mark 8 verse 38 to Mark 9 verse 1. Now, those of you who were here last Sunday, you know that we left Jesus explaining to the crowd what it means to be his follower and why that matters. We looked at Mark 8 verse 34 to verse 37. What did we learn in the morning? We learned in the morning that true Christians follow Jesus. And following Jesus means denying ourselves. And we deny ourselves because Jesus offered himself for us. That's what we learned by just looking at verse 34. In the evening we looked at the important point of what does it mean to follow Jesus in relation to the world. And we learned that you can't ride two horses. Right? To follow, it's either the world or Jesus. Those who truly belong to Jesus deny the world. And that's what we learned from verse 35 to verse 37. Now, in the two verses we're looking at, verse 38 and verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus is challenging us to ensure that we are ready for his second coming. We are ready when he comes in the world. Let's read those verses. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, over him with the Son of Man, also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy Angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not test death until they see the kingdom of God after it does come with power. The key phrase in these two verses actually is when he comes. When he comes. It is not if. But when he comes, when Jesus appears in glory, that's the key word, when. The return of Christ is one appointment we can't reschedule or cancel. I love doing that. If I have an appointment, I can find 50 ways of rescheduling it, just putting it off and off and off and off, and some of you know that already. Uh, but this is when I can do that, when you can't cancel. It is in God's diary, and it must happen. It is fixed. And here is the most important thing. We do not know when Jesus will appear for the second time. It could be today, right now, before the sermon ends. It could be this evening. We might not even have an evening service. Uh, It could be, well, we'll have a better evening service, should I say. When the Lord comes in glory, right? Uh, We are not on the planning committee. We are on the reception committee. What we need to know is that Jesus is coming. And his return is imminent. So therefore, because it is imminent, it is crucial we give an answer to the question we are asking today. Are you ready to face Jesus when he appears for the second time? I just want to give you two reasons Jesus himself gives in this passage why it is important to be ready when he returns. One reason is negative and the other reason is positive. The first reason we need to be ready is that all who are not ready will perish forever when Jesus comes. All who are not ready will perish forever when Jesus comes. Now, I read a report in the Financial Times in April concerning a very popular American pastor with over 7 million TV viewers. I'll let you guess for yourself who it is. The FT editor, the American editor of the Financial Times went to interview him. And he asked him an important question. He says to him, How do you manage to keep sin and redemption out of your sermons when these things are so central to the message of Christianity? The preacher answered, He said, Look, I am a preacher's son, so I am an optimist. It is not my aim to dwell on technicalities. I want to help people sleep at night. I want to help people sleep (laughs) at night. Uh, The preacher's words are shameful, aren't they? They are shameful. Because they contradict the scriptures. But the tragedy is that many people, even in Bible-believing church, do not want to hear actually do share that view. Because they do not want to hear about sin, judgment, And matters concerning self control. We would rather people sleep well and suffer everlasting torment. That's what we would rather they do. They just sleep well now but suffer forever. That's what we would rather they do. But not Jesus. He wants our conscience awakened, troubled to help us flee from hell. And in this passage, we see that, don't we? Jesus warns us that unless we truly surrender to him, we'll perish in our sins when he comes for the second time. Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with with the holy angels. What does it mean to be ashamed of Jesus? Well, to be ashamed of Jesus and His words is to refuse to truly surrender your heart to Him. It's basically refusing to obey Mark 8, verse 34. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For, verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So to be ashamed of Jesus... It's just to refuse to surrender your life to him. To choose the world. To choose yourself and the world. Now, as Jesus is speaking this verse 35 and uses that word for whoever, let's bear in mind there are three groups listening to Jesus. Who this applies to. Who are not ready for Jesus' return. They won't surrender to him. There are three of them. The first group in the probably there or near there, the first group consists of those who flatly reject Jesus is God. They reject is the Messiah. No matter what evidence for Jesus is in front of them, they are not interested. The Pharisees are in this camp, remember. They have already declared Jesus as being demonized. They have rejected Him. Their attitude is like, talk to the end, we are not interested. And many people today, even some who attend church, reject Jesus in this way. They don't want to talk about him. They are happy to have a nice cup of coffee and do other things, but they're not interested in talking, in looking at Jesus as God. They do not want to surrender to him. They have rejected him. The second, and of course, much of society is that, isn't it? They would not even want to step in church uh, or anything like that. In the UK, God, of course, has been banned from public areas now. Except perhaps when the queen is talking at Christmas time. They're just not interested. They don't do it, God. The second group here are those who are actively, who are actively following Jesus in a physical sense. They're around him. But they only see him as a spiritual vending machine. Indeed, a vending machine full stop. The crowds are in this camp. They are not enemies of Jesus, publicly. They are actually huge fans of Jesus. Do you notice the crowd? They are very committed. They follow him wherever he goes. Sometimes, before he even arrives, they are already there. We've seen that in Mark. He's crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee, and they're all over there. They are bringing people to him. If you're just observing, you don't know what's going on, you think the crowd are very evangelistic for Jesus. They are there eating the food, doing all these things, and bringing people to him, we are told. Right? They bring others to come and see Jesus. But they are not doing this because they have surrendered their lives to Jesus. They are doing it to only use and abuse Jesus for their selfish ends. And many people are like that in church. They follow Jesus so that he can meet their desires. better family. I need to go to church because my kids need to behave better. I need to go to church because I might find a husband there. I need to go to church or I need to follow Jesus or read my Bible because it will enhance my career. Some of course are open about it. They are in church because they want many. Or they are looking, they are coming to Jesus so that Jesus can heal them for some physical health or mental health problem they have. Others just come to church because it's a nice club, isn't it? It's a club you meet others. All of these people are doing it they have one thing in common. It is about them. They follow Jesus' what Jesus can give them in this life not because they love Jesus. Jesus exists to satisfy their material needs. Then there's a final group, isn't there? There's a group of those who are like Judas Iscariot, on paper they are disciples, but privately we've seen they have not surrendered their hearts to Jesus. And uh, we have seen already when we looked at Judas Iscariot that there are many in church who are Judases, not because they betray anyone, but because they betray Jesus Himself. They regularly attend church; they are, might even be baptized. They might have committed themselves to membership. They might even served very well in church to the point of being pastors. Just like Judas. And they may have done extraordinary things for the kingdom. They are not as good as Judas. Judas went out there and did some serious miracles. I don't think anyone is doing what Judas did in terms of healing here. In this world now. The signs and wonders that Judas did Performed when Jesus sent him out. I don't think anyone alive is doing any of that. So they're not as gifted as Judas, but they are closer to Judas. And yet, the truth of the matter is that these people belong to Satan, because Judas, of course, belonged to Satan. On paper, they are Christians, but they are hard. They have what we call a secret opposition to Jesus. They know in their hearts they have not surrendered to Jesus. They're trying to ride two horses. So, whether it's group one or group two or group three, all of these things, all these people have one thing in common. They have they are ashamed of Jesus. And they are not ready to meet him. And therefore, Jesus says here they will suffer everlasting punishment. And this terrible divine punishment starts on the moment of death and will be confirmed permanently ratified permanently when the Lord comes in glory. And we know that's what Jesus is talking about because look at verse 35. He's already told us, whoever will save his life will lose it. He tells us. Verse 36, for what does he profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We looked at that. Verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? There will come a moment in which they are suffering everlasting punishment. They will want to get out of that situation, but they won't. Because their souls will be condemned to hell forever. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 38. He too, Jesus says, will be ashamed when he comes in the glory. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now this truth that Jesus will punish sinners, will judge and condemn sinners to everlasting punishment, is difficult for human beings to accept. Many of us don't truly accept this. We may, we may not do it, but we, in our hearts and hearts, some of us just don't accept this. There's something in your heart that says, well, I don't believe quite in a God like that. Well, opinion is not truth, is it? It's not what we think that matters, it's what Jesus says. And Jesus is saying he will punish those who reject him. Now it is important for us to ask this question, why will Jesus punish those who reject him? The answer is that God is holy and just. When God says the wages of sin is death, he means it. He means total death. Physical death, yes, but really the deeper death. Being cut off from the life of God, eternal death, forever, cut off from him, and under his wrath. Anyone who does not believe in Jesus, has not surrendered to Jesus, the wrath of God is resting on them even now. Their life is almost suspended over hell, ready to be burned. Because God is holy and just. And all of us here would want to agree that we want God to be holy and just. All of us do. You want God to be holy and just. Why do I say that? Because we we know in our own lives we see powerful people out there who are ungodly. And we know what they are ungodly when they have power do with it. We know what Saddam did with his power in Iraq. We know what Bashir did with his power in Sudan. We know know what Hitler did with his power. He exterminated a whole race of people. People who only have power, but they have no goodness, do that. We know God has power. So we want him to be holy, don't we? We want him to be holy and just. Do you really want a God who torments and indulges in sin just like us? You don't want that. You want a God who is holy and just. Because only such a God is reliable. So at the heart of hearts, you accept God is holy and just. You accept that. What you need to accept is that unless you repent, unless you are ready to face Jesus, you will perish at his hands. And in our heart of hearts, all of us want there, all of us here, there is, no, there is no one here who does not want final judgment. That might puzzle you. But there's really no one here in the heart of hearts, I believe, who does not want there to be a final judgment. How do I know that? I know that because you have faced injustice in your life. You see the injustice around you. You want God one day to punish evildoers because all of us have this longing for ultimate justice. You want there to be a day of accountability. Because, beloved, if God won't punish murderers who reject him, what do we say to six-month-old Molly Mae Weatherspoons who was fatally attacked by an American pit bull, kept illegally by Mother Claire and Grandma Susan, yet they only served two years in prison. What do we say to Molly May? We can't say anything if there's no final accountability. What do we say to John Greenwood and Gary Miller, whose bodies were found beaten and eaten under a mattress on a rubbish tip in Wiston in 1980, and yet that case has never been solved? What do we say to Madeleine McCann? who oh, even now we're still looking for her. Where is justice for her? You see, if God is, no, if there is no ultimate justice, we have no answers to such question. Without a God who punishes forever, who rejects him, we have no hope of meaningful justice in our lives. There's nothing we can do if our boss really happens to evil, or if we walk out the street and we are murdered. There will be no justice for us if there's no final day of accountability. Do you see? All of us long for ultimate justice, and we know it is right. And the answer to ultimate justice is that Jesus is coming to punish evildoers. Because without such a judge, without such an accountability, we are left with nowhere to turn. But thank God that Jesus is just. And he will punish all who reject him. The question for us this morning is quite simple. Are you ready to stand before him when he comes? The only way, beloved, to be ready when Jesus comes is to truly surrender your life to him. Not based on your own righteousness, but to be based on his death on the cross in your place. Because right there on the cross, you see, Jesus took the very wrath of God that you deserve. He died in your place. If this sounds difficult, what we're hearing, understand that the solution is there. Jesus has died in your place at Calvary. There is a story of a father and a son uh, who are walking across farm fields during a very dry season. As they look in the distance, they see a massive wall of fire steadily moving towards them. This is somewhere in the countryside. And they see this wall of fire coming to them. It is being carried on the wind. And so what do you do when the war of fire is coming towards you where father and son start running? But quickly they discover that, no, if they keep running, the fire is going to outpace them anyway. So what do they do? They just stop. The boy buries his face in his dad's side. But just before the fire reaches them, the father reaches his hand into his pocket. And he pulls out a packet of matches. Or perhaps today will be a cigarette lighter, <laughs> but he pulls out a packet of matches, and he lights the matches. And what he does is, he takes this matches is lit and he tosses it behind them, right? And so now a little fire has started behind them. It's burning, starting slowly, and it's beginning to burn behind them, even as the massive wall of fire is coming. And as that massive wall of fire comes closer to them, what the dad then does is he scoops up to the son's surprise, he scoops up his son, and he gently steps back into the burnt ashes of the fire he has just lit. And of course, that small fire is controllable; the ashes have gone. So when the wall of fire now arrives, it has no fuel, nothing to fuel itself with. Because they are now standing in the burnt remains of the other fire. The father and son are safe. The point of the story is obvious, isn't it? It surely is. If you want to be safe from the fire, you must go to the place where the fire has already burned. That's what you do. The fire has been through here. That's where I must stand. In life, beloved, there is only one place where we can find safety from the fire of God's wrath. And that is where it has already been burned. Where is that? It is on the cross. That is the place where the fire of God already burned. On the cross, Jesus took on himself the full divine wrath, the fire of God that belonged to us for eternity. Concentrate on six hours. poured on him. Jesus did it so that we could stand in those burnt ashes, be safe from that wrath. Anyone who comes to the cross, surrenders to Jesus, is safe from from the judgment of Christ. And the question, beloved, this morning is, have you done that? Because if you have not truly surrendered to Jesus, you must do it now. Because if you do not, you will perish forever. Are you ready for Jesus? That's the first, that's the negative and first reason for being ready for Jesus' return. Because all who are not ready will perish forever. Now, quickly, for the second and positive reason for being ready to meet Jesus. The second reason is this all who are ready have a glorious future. All who are ready have a glorious future. Now, two years ago, Steve Pallet, a politician from the island of Jersey, uh, made headlines. Uh, You may remember Pallet traveled from Jersey to Budapest, Hungary, for the handover of the Dance World Cup. The only problem, of course, is that the handover was in Bucharest, Romania, so he only realized he got that wrong. It's easy to get it wrong, isn't it? Bucharest, Budapest, right? It's easy to get those two things wrong. Uh, he only realized that he was headed in the wrong city when uh, the plane was about to land. And so he missed the handover of the Dance World Cup. As I think about Mr. Palace's experience, it reminds us that it is important to know where you are going in life. Destinations have consequences. And the good news is that if you are in Jesus, there is no doubt about where you are going. You are on the correct flight, and your next destination is glorious, because it says so in verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, over him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Do you remember what we said about the title, Son of Man? The title, Son of Man, means it comes from Daniel 7. And it actually means Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And while on earth, Jesus, is divine glory, while being on earth, his divine glory, as the God-man, was veiled. Because we read that in uh, Philippians 2 verse 5 to 7 we couldn't see all of his glory, the glory of Christ Philippians 2 verse 5 to 7 says this, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Jesus Christ who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man in other words, the glory of Jesus was veiled. We, we, we saw some of his glory as, 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 as his fully God, of course. Uh, but we couldn't see because the glory of Christ, if you like, was covered in human flesh, we might say. But in verse 38, Jesus is saying that when he comes for the second time, he is coming in His divine glory. That's what I mean by coming in the glory of His Father. He's coming as a member of the triune God, as God the Son. And when He comes, we will all truly belong to Him, will bask in His splendor. How do we know that? Because of what Jesus says next in verse 1 of chapter 9. Notice what Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 9 And he said to them Truly I said to you There are some standing here Who will not test death Until they see the kingdom of God After it has come with power Now if we just read verse 1 by itself It leaves us many confused And of course non-believers get excited When they read this passage They say "You you see I told you Jesus can get things wrong right well, first of all, let's remember that the Bible, this, this Mark, by the way, was written, would have been written actually after the disciples, many of them, except perhaps John, had died. So they are recording something that they are absolutely uh, sure about. Secondly, the key point here is to remember, though, when we come to understanding these verses, is to the key to understand is that it comes after verse 38. Now. And before verse 2. This is quite important, right? Mark chapter 9 verse 1 comes after Mark chapter 8 verse 38. And before Mark chapter 9 verse 2 to 9. It sounds like I'm just making an obvious point. But it is easy to forget, isn't it? Because the key to understand is the context of this passage. What Jesus is doing in verse 1 is promising that some people who are listening to him are about to experience the power of the kingdom of God. Now let us remember the reason we are going through Mark verse by verse is to understand the whole book of Mark. And we know in the book of Mark that what is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God in Mark is a person. That's quite important. We've been saying throughout that Jesus is the kingdom of God appearing in person. That is why when Jesus enters the stage in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, the Kairos moment has arrived. Repent and believe in the gospel. Because Jesus himself is the kingdom of God breaking in. That's quite important. And in verse 2 to verse 8, Jesus' glory, the glory of the kingdom of God, and its power is displayed. Now, this evening, we are going to read to study verse 2 to verse 8. We'll look at this transfiguration, the kingdom of God breaking in at that moment with power and glory. We'll see that the purpose of the event is actually to give us a future glimpse of the glory of Christ and our own resurrected glory with Christ. So to summarize, what Jesus is saying in verse 38 is this. I will return in glory, verse 38. And in chapter 9, verse 1, he's saying, I am going to give some of you an advanced preview of my glory. This is how Peter understood Jesus' words. Jesus who was there at the mount, Peter who was there at the mountain of Transfiguration, remembers that moment as the coming of Jesus himself in power. Look at uh, 2 Peter. Turn with me just finally to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1 verse 16 to verse 18. Let's just read that. 2 Peter chapter 1. In fact, of course you'd, you'd have read this as we're going through 2 Peter in Bible study. Uh, we haven't come to this yet. Uh, verse 16 to verse 18 of chapter 1. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you, listen to this, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we pause, hmm, what is this power and coming? What is Peter referring to? Well, he goes on to say, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. When? When? Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. When was this? There are two moments that happened. Peter reminds us in verse 18. We ourselves at this very voice born from heaven. is not referring to Mark chapter 1. Back to Mark chapter 9, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, verse 2 to verse 8. So far from trying to confuse us, Jesus in verse 1 of Mark chapter 9, if we go back to Mark chapter 9, is assuring his followers that we have a glorious future. And the wonderful thing about Mark 9, verse 2 to 8, is that it is a foretest of that glory. And this is the key truth here, beloved. If you are in Jesus, you are ready to meet Jesus when he comes again. And he will be glorious for you. And what a sight it will be when our Lord Jesus appears from heaven. And to be glorified to him, what a day that will be. We will experience our own transfiguration. We will be transformed into his image. We are already born again inside. That's our inner reality. But we'll see the glory of what it means to be born again when Jesus comes. To live and enjoy Him forever. What a, what a life that would be. Every day, being in the presence of Jesus. Living in the new heavens and the new earth. Never again to suffer. Never again to sin. Never again worrying about family business here and there. Trying to worry about the boss. All of that gone. Glory awaits us. And if you're trusting in Jesus, this is your future, beloved. You have eternal glory ahead of you, regardless of your present circumstance. Some of you are going through very difficult situations right now. Very hard situations. But, beloved, this passage is reminding us, no matter what your current circumstance, your destiny is glorious. Your destiny is glorious. And it is already written permanently in the blood of Jesus. So with that ahead of us, how then should we live? Well, we should live as people preparing for the greatest appointment of all time. You are, beloved, about to meet your Savior. You might meet Him immediately when He appears, or you might meet Him through death. Are you ready for that? Yes, Jesus has already made you ready by his blood, but will you just be content to get to heaven with a ticket and come up to heaven rugged and unprepared? Jesus has died for you. Does it not matter then how you turn up to heaven? It does. Beloved, because we are going to heaven, we want to be ready. We had a wedding here earlier this year, and uh, my goodness, it was wonderful. You took great care to be ready for that wedding. I mean I saw some of you, I won't mention my brother, I saw some of you don't in a suit. I've never seen you in a suit. (laughs) I am thinking, wow, looking wonderful. I couldn't encourage one of my my dear brother, they're looking very super duper as you were, dressed in a suit. And I was like, Wow, I couldn't bear some of you guys were completely transformed, right? You're coming to an appointment with a wedding, very important. What more, beloved, you're preparing for the great supper of the, of the Lamb. The marriage feast to our bridegroom, Jesus. The one who has purchased us with his own precious blood. He has made us ready, yes, but... Because he has made us ready, we must get ourselves ready. The bride who knows that she's married... Does she make less effort on wedding day? (laughs) Who knows that she's already going to get married? Does she make less effort? Or does she make more effort on her wedding day? Of course she makes more effort. Her future is already secure. I'm sure if she turned up ragged, the marriage wouldn't be cut off. But she makes an effort because she knows this is a beautiful thing. You know, Prince William lives each day as a man with a great appointment in the future. He's waiting to be king of this country. And you can see the difference between King William and Prince Harry. Prince Harry he just does his own thing and he's doing his own thing. But Prince William, very serious, you know, all the time. And is a man ready for kingship. He's ready. And everything he does is geared towards that. Any disappointment he suffers in life, he knows they're preparing him for kingship. Our attitude, beloved, should be the same. We must use every situation to prepare, to be as radiant as possible Follow our Lord Jesus when he comes in glory. And being ready changes everything. Imagine if the next time you face opposition at work, you remembered that you have a glorious appointment with Jesus. Imagine if next time you receive bad news in the family, you remember that you have a glorious future. Imagine when next time you, 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 you are facing a difficult decision, you just remembered that the future is already settled and is glorious. But well, if you do that, your whole life will be a celebration of, your, of God's glorious future. And the way you live will bring glory to Jesus today. And that's what we should take away from this passage. If you are trusting in Jesus, know that you are ready for the glorious return. And so rest now in his glorious arms of love.